Hello, I'm Sarah Spiteri, and you're listening to The Well-Crafted Life, the new podcast from Homes and Gardens that considers one big question. How do we enhance our homes? And so, our lives. Every week, I'll be asking three tastemakers to share three secrets. It's a podcast that focuses as much on the little things as the big things, because a well-crafted life is made up of both. I hope you enjoy the show. This episode of The Well-Crafted Life is sponsored by Martin Moore, Classic English Kitchens. This week's theme is Reuse, Repurpose, Restore. My experts come from both furniture making and interiors, and each brings a fresh perspective. First, we hear from furniture maker Sebastian Cox. Sebastian crafts gorgeous wooden furniture. He manages woodland and has a zero-waste workshop. And while renovating his home, he has managed to repurpose most of the old materials. My second guest is Russell Sage, the interior designer you'll know from the Goring and the Five Farms. A passionate antiquer, Russell believes that well-made things are precious. My final guest is Maria Speak, who founded Salvage Reclamation and Design Studio Vitruvius 25 years ago with her husband, Adam Hills. Together, they rescue materials, lighting, furniture and fittings, and then reuse them in the interior and architectural projects that they design. The show covers cooking on wood, the joy of gardening, tactility, and the kitchen island that once was Barbara Cartland's snooker table. Kicking things off, I'd like to welcome my first guest, maker Sebastian Cox. Seb, you've recently moved to Margate, haven't you, with your wife Brogan and daughter Sorrel. Why don't you tell us about your new home and what it means to you? Yeah. Hi, Sarah. Well, um, it means a lot because it's our first home. Um, So before we lived in London and that meant that we kind of lived in a small flat and now we have taken the step to leave London and and, um, that's given us the freedom to have uh, a house which we can, you know, do what we like with it. I think we've always had this yearning to express ourselves creatively, which we felt was compromised by not being able to alter the fabric of a rented property. So of to actually have a house is it means so much. And um I guess, you know, the sort of secrets for living are yet to be completely developed. Um but it means a massive amount. It's a Victorian terrace. Um it's about 150 meters from the sea. Um it's everything we wanted and um just timing it with, you know, coronavirus and the lockdowns has been such a godsend. We feel extremely blessed to be here and um, and extremely invigorated by this opportunity to kind of impress ourselves upon a building sensitively. Now, of course, um, knowing you, your renovation is as sustainable as possible. Now, what does that really mean? Yeah, it means um, not kind of tearing into it too much. Uh, it means trying to avoid... Uh, having an impact with, you know, materials like, I mean, the first thing is we're trying not to pour any concrete because um, that's really bad <laughs> to, to, to go straight in with cement. It yeah. has an incredibly high carbon footprint. We're also trying to avoid uh, ripping too much out. So avoiding skips is quite important. Um, repurposing materials, which is something which I've not really done in my professional work. My professional work is always about new materials with kind of undervalued British hardwoods. So we're not really known as like people who kind of use reclaim. In fact, we often say no to reclaim when people ask us to use it um, because it's kind of fiddly in our business. So it's been quite fun to get down to Scott's, which is the local reclaim place and sort of see what's there and and see what we can repurpose. So 
Um, and what was the fabric of this house like? Were, you know, do, were you working with quite a good canvas? Being our first house, we didn't want to go and take too much of a risk. So the house uh, was a uh, rented house, but a fairly unloved rented house. It hadn't been kind of recently done up. And um, at one point it was divided into two flats. So um, it was stuff like, you know, really nasty uh, vinyl flooring. But what had been done is that it had been put down over the top of the floorboards. So there's loads of original still here. There's never been a moment where the roof hasn't been on the house. So what's in here uh, is largely original. And that's been an amazing sort of canvas. And it hasn't taken much peeling back, which is why we've had very limited amount of runs to the tip and we haven't had a massive cause to have a skip um, but I still think yeah, that even true. with a house like this lots of people would fill a skip because people would think oh yeah actually I'm gonna you know I'm gonna extend here and tear into this and do this but actually we've just wanted to kind of live in the space do it up as we go and uh, I think that's one of the m- big differences as well is that people often um, you know buy the house like rent somewhere nearby completely gut it get all of the tradesmen in to do it and and that's such a big and um invasive process and actually sure. we've, been, we've been really keen to kind of feel our way through and also really keen to kind of actually make the house ourselves so i've learned to plaster and um, lay tiles and all those sorts of things so you know um that's been a really fun part of the process as well that links me to your first secret your home workshop so yeah my first secret is that i think um everybody should strive to make as much as possible of their own house and in their own house. We have, uh, the house comes with quite a large cellar. Um, so that was kind of a really obvious space. And actually, yeah, yeah, that was apart from the garden, that was kind of the first space that, um, I was really keen to, to set up. I, I grew up, uh, with, um, you know, or kind of on, on, on and around farms. And, um, my dad would always have a workshop with welders in there and all sorts. And so I, I always remember him making things. And in fact, um, my parents separated when I was about eight, but when I go to, when I was kind of living at my mom's, um, in my twenties, I remember discovering things that he had made and being so surprised that, um, with no disrespect to my dad. And I think he was actually yeah. surprised to remember that, um, that he'd made them, but like finding the kit, my mom asked me to resand her kitchen counter. And, um, and I remember sort of getting in it and underneath it and realizing that it had been made by my dad. And actually that idea of kind of like making the home yourself, uh, is something which is, you know, I, I really felt as a child, but I've sort of taken it even further because I've, my dad has sort has. of basic tools in the shed, but I've got, uh, woodworking machinery in our cellar. Um, like a a panel saw and and all those kinds of things. So, so yeah, it's something which I sort of has been part of my, my childhood, my, my DNA, I suppose, but we're really trying to take it to the nth degree, um, and, and try to do as much as possible. You know, we are, once we've got the fabric of the building sorted and our second baby kind of, uh, a bit more settled, (laughs) um, yeah, just a few things to do. We 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 will invest in a potter's wheel and throw our dinnerware. And um, I want to get a forge and rework the ironwork out in front of the house. Um, and I, you know, love, lovely little like touches that I've tried to do, which is like the, the study, which is above the cellar, has a, my record player and my record collection, and I've linked it up to a Sonos system down there, so I can have this sort of thing which you, I can't have in my professional workshop up in London, uh, which is that I can kind of listen to vinyl while while I'm working and. Um, and it's great as well to sort of close the loop on, you know, in terms of family where I remember sort of tottering around my dad's workshop while he did things like welding. I always remember him, you know, telling me to look away when he was about to do the welding and things like that. Um, Brogan bought Sorrel a little pair of ear defenders and she comes down in the workshop. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sweet. 
Yeah, organizes the screws. Yes, yeah, so she puts all of the different length screws in the same box, which is really annoying. But just like one of those things, which is precious, and I think uh, hopefully will have a good impression on her. Absolutely, because I mean, it sounds like although um, your father wasn't doing this professionally, it sounds like you've been immersed in you know handmade design from a very young age. Do you think that was what sparked your career? Yeah, I mean. Absolutely. I, he 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 wasn't a professional furniture maker, but he did. Uh, he and my mum ran a business restoring um, period property, specifically medieval houses and right. barns in Kent. Okay, so they were so in he, the business sort of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think growing up around that making, and whether it was him kind of making things and welding things, he used to uh, have a business uh, w- fabricating agricultural machinery. Like he used to build tipping trailers and stuff like that. Um, which was really interesting. But then with his, with their business, um, he they would have um, carpenters uh, s- sort of shaving scarf joints in a yard out of, out of green oak. Um, and then that would be assembled on site as a sort of repair or, or a new extension on a, on a medieval building. And I just remember this, the smell of green oak for me is so evocative of my childhood. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I was totally exposed to uh, a lot of making as a child. And um and kind of not in this sort of fetishized way that it is today. I think because my dad was a farmer originally, um, there is a sort of necessity of making, you know, you have to fix yeah. things all the time on a farm. And um, so I think it's funny because my dad's sort of reaction to the kind of like craft revolution that we're all experiences is he's pretty like unimpressed by it really, because he, he you know, uh, that kind of making was just a necessity. He, he doesn't sort of see beauty in, in, the, in the kind of objects. I mean, he likes my furniture, but... he's not being sort of caught by it because it's just part, it's like eating to him, you know, making stuff is just, it's just part of what he does. Um, So let's talk about the craft revolution. You know, why do you think consumers are interested in craft? Why do we think we, you know, are lucky enough to have seen this explosion of interest over the last, you know, however many years? I, I think that originally the craft revolution if we're calling it that, that we're experiencing at the moment was sort of sparked by a sort of reaction against digital. I think everyone was kind of being made to work more and more in front of screens. And I think people realized that um, actually perhaps there's something being lost in our new sort of work life. And so there was a, a kind of a fetishization of people making things with hands. There's a, there's a, there's a sort of a, a perceived dignity in labor. Um, yeah. uh which can only come from those who don't do enough labor, I think. <laughs> um, so I think it started out as that, but I think increasingly it's becoming linked to this question around sustainability. Um, I think we're realizing that this, this unquestioned globalization and uh, industrialization, obviously, you know, we've had like 200 years of industrialization, but the point that we've reached, I think people are starting to look at it and say, is should we just keep going like should we just keep going in this direction is that necessarily better is that necessarily an improvement and i think that craft really embodies this idea that we are looking back to look forwards and for me that's always been an underpinning of my professional life but also just like a a way of thinking um generally about how i live so i'm always thinking about uh you know the traditions of of how people lived and operated and very often there are very clear answers uh to today's problems in the past Essentially, I think we're sort of realizing that we, we, although we feel very futuristic and like things are, are working out, we really clearly have made some big mistakes along the way that perhaps need undoing. 
And um, I think it's just a question of how far back we we should be looking and and what point in history we should maybe track back to rather than just an endless progress. Because we, we don't seem to ask big questions about how we got here and where we are anymore. And I think we should start to. And I think craft is a really good lens through which to look at that. And that actually links um, your second secret is cooking and heating on wood, which feels like um, part of this narrative of looking back to sort of traditional ways of living. Well, fire is uh, such an interesting thing because it sort of put us here. It it made us who we are. You know, we learned to cook food and suddenly uh, we were a species that elevated above the animal kingdom because we could Mm -hmm. store things. We had stronger bodies, bigger brains. And in recent years, we've been sort of turning our back on fire, you know, burning things obviously adds carbon to the atmosphere. Um, There's knowledge now about particulates in fire. And there's sort of like there's been this kind of general sort of resistance to it. Fires, uh, they are becoming more popular in homes now, which is really good, but they have been ripped out of homes for years. So I'm kind of really fascinated by it. And as you say, it is is part of our tradition as a species. So... um, when one of the things that we could never have in our London flat was a fire and it used to really bother me because we produce so many offcuts of course of beautiful yeah. dry wood and even our dust we compress it into briquettes and we were giving it away to people um mm. to reduce our carbon footprint and um so to actually have an access of fuel and not be able to burn it was was agony for me. So uh, moving here, one of the first things that I did was check out the chimneys. And we found that we had a chimney in our kitchen, as often Victorian kitchens had a range or something in there. So I wanted a uh, stove in there that I could cook on. Um, and I fell in love with the SE ranges of, um, they have a thing called the Bake Heart and the Iron Heart. And um, the Bake Heart is a small uh, wood-fueled oven and hob and um, it is just a dream to cook on. And then we have other SE wood burners in our living room and study. So we have kind of three fires in the house. Cooking part of how you and um, Brogan spend your time. Absolutely. Yes, it, it really is. And, um, you know, without over romanticizing the whole thing, we also have an induction hob and electric oven next door. So during the week, if we want to put together a quick supper, you know, like a quick yeah. lunch for Sorrel, we can do that. But w- at weekends, I find it really hard to switch off and kind of wind down. So like, for example, over Christmas, the way that I did that was to just start cooking on the SE because, yeah. you know, if you want to cook, you've got to think three hours ahead with your wood. You've got to get it to the right temperature. You're, you have on, on something like a wood powered stove, you have, it's similar to an agar, I suppose. You have ranges and zones of temperature. So you've got the intense heat in the top of the oven. You can cook directly over okay. the coals. You've got the sort of cooler spots on the top. So it sort of makes you less in control and less just touch of a button uh, supremacy that comes from electric cooking. So it sort of puts yes. you back, makes you think, and, and that really helps me unwind. I adore cooking. I'm really passionate about food and the sustainability that comes with food. So for me, that's a really important part of my sort of rituals at living at home. And then, of course, a part of our business is that we manage woodland. So we also have this access to a highly sustainable coppice resource. So I, again, tied into this sort of ritual is that I'm thinking ahead to go and harvest some wood to dry it properly. Splitting wood for me, I mean, just using an axe, I could do it for hours and hours. It's like this meditative ritual where uh, your brain goes off into somewhere else and, um, you know, you're effectively you know, you're being warmed by the wood twice is the kind of old expression that you, you, you know, you, you, you do that. this lovely day of exercise. Oh, it's beautiful. You do this day out in the cold and, you know, the robin comes over because you've been there for so long. 
doing one activity and you you know just the idea of preparing heat for your family is yeah. just so primal and so um yeah I, I i get quite emotional about it actually i i absolutely I can understand that i compl- and i completely agree now closing the loop um something that's very you tell us what layman what that means essentially closing the loop is about reframing our extractive uh, way that we work in society. So at the, at the moment, we kind of extract something from the ground, we use it, and then we dispose of it. And closing the loop, essentially what it means is that the things that we're done with are materials for the next thing that we need. And that involves quite a complicated rethink and restructure of society. But the job there is for designers. So this is the exciting bit is that we can have a massive impact on our material culture by rethinking these things and closing the loop. So the idea is that we design out waste. And it's actually quite easy uh, to do. Nature doesn't know waste. Nature, nature has entirely closed loops everywhere. So, you know, the, the, the leaves that drop off a tree in the winter are nutrients for its growth in the spring. There's everywhere is a closed loop in the natural world. We're the only thing that has come along on this planet and created linear systems of uh, extract, use and dispose. So it's really, really important to me, uh, you know, in our professional business that we are f- part of a closed loop system and that we should all be striving to close loops everywhere and support businesses that do that. And this, feel, you know, this is a very important that we strive towards that. Is there anything which is a, ma- a major thing? If there was one thing that you could advise or hope people to do, one small step, what would that be? Well, I think the the, the essence of living more sustainably is to basically ask more questions of the companies from which you buy and just have a more curious mind. You know, I think knowing what we know about the damage that we're doing to our planet, it is inexcusable to lazily carry on as normal. I think personally, I think that we all have a duty to sort this out. We're running out of time. If we want to see, you know, a healthy life on this planet for the next 50 years, uh, now is the time that we have to act. You have to educate yourself. It's a small thing, but just start questioning, start asking the questions. And, and, and as you find the answers, uh, you'll find great satisfaction and happiness in knowing that, you know, you can begin to have a positive impact. And I think um, your third secret to your garden, and I think actually that is one way in a rewilding, all of that kind of thing is one way also people can quite accessibly tap into small changes yeah. So uh, again, you know, having the flat in London before I didn't have a garden, we had a balcony and I had it planted up uh, like it was a garden, but here we have soil and that is such a, an amazing and important uh, part of our earth that we must look after. So the first thing I did in the garden was lift all of the concrete, get all of that earth, which was basically just dirt under the concrete because it had been killed off by the concrete. Um, and I've planted it with wildflower turf, and, and I also planted um, sub pods, which are these kind of um, intense compost heaps. So we're closing the loop on our food waste by turning our scraps into, into soil and compost for the garden. Um, you know, I, I bought these boxes and put 3,000 worms in there and they kind of really yeah. intensively create these things. Yeah. Um, uh, the wildflower turf is intended to be a nice lawn for sorrel to play on, but I'm only going to mow half of it, uh, twice a year. The other half I'm going to mow monthly. Um, I'm even like, uh, you know, thinking about looking back to look forwards. I was thinking about, you know, gosh, how am I going to cut it? And, um, looking into mowers. And then I thought, what am I doing? Why do I want a mower? I'm only going to use it once a month. So I've invested in a scythe, a hand scythe, and I've learned That's to sharpen brilliant. it. 
yeah. um, and I'm going to scythe my lawn. Um, and the idea is that basically it's a small space, but we're going to see how much you can have a small space and let go of it. Like we don't need to dominate that tiny space. We will use it in a fairly limited manner, you know, during the summer months. So actually rather than designating the whole thing for us or for Sorrel, uh, what can we do to let nature have some of that garden? So, for example, letting the grass grow long um, and we're putting in trees and shrubs and things like that. So um, it'll be really interesting to see. Yeah, Sebastian, it's been so interesting chatting to you. I can't wait to hear about how you add the pottery wheel to your workshop. I can't wait to you know, hear about your new daughter who's coming in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and I think the home you're building is obviously a real haven and retreat for everyone and one that also manages to do that whilst having the planet in mind. So I admire that and I'm very inspired. So thank you very much for your time. I just want to interrupt to talk to you about Martin Moore. Specialists in bespoke kitchen furniture, Martin Moore is known for classic English design with an elegant, timeless style. Committed to excellence and British craftsmanship, all their kitchens are custom designed and handmade to order in their UK workshops. To find out about Martin Moore and their kitchens, head to their website, martinmoore.com, or follow them on Instagram at Martin Moore Design. My second guest on today's episode, Reuse, Repurpose, Restore, is interior designer Russell Sage. Hi, Russell. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure. Now, Russell, when we think of your design style, we think British, we think flamboyant, and we think, I don't know, full of stories. Tell me, does that translate into how you live at home? I would love to say, no, I'm completely different, but actually it's exactly <laughs> how it, trans- it translates to how I am at home. I-, I live with a lot of the things that end up in my interiors. So at the moment, I've got two taxidermy giraffes in my hallway Um, (laughs) but but sometimes things stay sometimes things stay for a long time but as we do interiors it may be that I think oh that would look so much better in that that project so um, my home's very transient and uh, I I leave auction stickers and notes on all my furniture so I'm I can remember where it's come from and and you know how much it costs and things like that so it does often look like a, a going to an auction house. And do you buy new at all or do you mostly buy from auction houses or other vintage um, sources? It's that's a really interesting question because I, I think it I, I've always set out to make sure we weren't um, typecast but my true love is antiques so uh, the big five arms hotel we did in Braemar 18 months ago had 18,000 antiques and objects in it wow. it took four years to assemble we had a team of uh, restorers from Edinburgh Museum it was an incredible project to do but then at the same time we do make we bespoke make probably for our projects 60 percent of what we do it's just people don't realize we do that but we have a huge love of bespoke making furniture in unbelievable detail Uh, for instance uh, the royal suite at the goring we did we actually bespoke made everything but then i bought original letters um that queen victoria had written and hid them into the furniture so when you open a drawer it's under underneath the glass at the bottom of a drawer and it's just like little finds in the furniture so um even if something's bespoke made it's often got some historical detail brought to it and so antiques you know you grew up i believe in a kind of sunset pub red walls rich colors and when did the antique 
antique, the love of antiques kind of first come about? <laughs> it actually, my, my parents took over the pub when I was uh, 15 from memory and I helped fill the pub with the antiques. So, oh, okay. So it um, predates the pub. Oh, gosh, way predates pub. The pub was an empty pub and I filled it up with antiques. So my mother often laughs because on my 18th birthday, she gave me some money and told me I had to go and buy clothes. And I came back with a Victorian pig salter, which is a giant, <laughs> giant table covered in lead to chop pigs up on. Um, and it, I, I have never, I can't remember a time when I wasn't, obsessively collecting. And that's so interesting because a lot of people think you started your career in fashion. Well, I, but, I was in fashion. <laughs> but actually... Then I already had a giant warehouse full of antique furniture, yeah. antique fabrics. Um, I, I, I actually had a uh, small interior business before I went into fashion. So I, I've always been between the two. And it was only a very happy accident that I was hired by LVMH as a fashion designer to design one of their interiors that it allowed me to step back into the thing that I truly love doing. And do you think your interest in fashion is where you kind of get that storytelling um, or where do you think your sort of love of storytelling in interiors has come from? That's a fantastic question. I I, um, am quite obsessive about um, the backstory of everything and I really enjoy researching and understanding why something was like it is. So I, I quite often with my team, I'm talking to them about something and I might be talking about a particular detail on a piece of furniture and I forget that not everybody knows that. Yeah. <laughs> it's really to do with, I, I used to be a real kind of antique snob and love Georgian interiors and arts and crafts interiors, very specific. And actually, then we had to do a big Victorian interior. And eventually, one of the biggest projects we ever did, which is the Five Farms, was was all Victorian. And I I, I realised there's a there's a real connection to how people lived, why things were the proportion, shape, uh, the construction they were, and then how that felt really comfortably in a in a room. So working in historically. So period buildings and historic buildings, actually you can work in um, contemporary furniture, but it's really important to respect the proportions of that room you're working in. And how does that translate to your house at home? What You live in London. In London most of the time, although the, the, the dreaded lockdown has meant I've retreated to my home in Somerset, which is uh, an absolute joy to be at. I, I've owned it for 10 years. It's an old farmhouse. Um, yeah. When I bought it, it was... Uh, had a, a sheet asbestos roof and plastic windows, and <laughs> but, it, but it's down the end of a very long lane with 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 eight eight acres of land stretching around it. And I think one of the things for me I miss most in London is that I miss the seasons. It was yeah. it would be summer, and then the next day it would be winter, and it was dark and rainy. And I I kind of missed that slow change. And there's something about your body experiencing that kind of slow pace that you know has been really enriching for me it really has because it's it's something i crave so much um not you know i i my, my team always joking because uh, i've not managed to achieve a holiday in 20 years so so, <laughs> so so i grab these little periods of time and actually now i just feel like well, i'm working as many hours as i ever did i did 12 13 hours yesterday but but actually i can look out the window and i and feel in touch with what my surroundings yeah, that's lovely. I'm going to move you to your first secret for how you elevate the everyday or what inspires you. Um, and I wanted yeah. to ask you about Dr. Christopher Dresser. I was, I was introduced to Dr. Christopher Dresser 
many, many years ago when I was fairly young and somebody showed me some of his design work and said, when do you think this was designed? And it looked so obviously um, arts and crafts, uh, you know, aesthetic movement. It, it was sort of post-Victorian. And actually, I then found out that he was designing these things in the 1870s in the sort of high Victorian era. Um, but but his design vision was extraordinary. He was one of those typical uh, legendary kind of creatives of 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 Great Britain in that he travelled all over the world. He built huge companies and, of course, died penniless and, and destitute, <laughs> uh, as they always did. Um, but he was actually, because he, he was working as a, a designer during the period of, of industrialization, he went out and instantly started working with Foundry, Colbrookdale Foundry, uh, with um, silk companies, with porcelains, and actually was working with them to create the first kind of ever interior collection, if you like. Right. And but his pieces are extraordinary. On the whole, they are anthropomorphic, so they look like they're about to walk off the table, and I adore that about furniture, uh, furniture and, and crockery and so on. Um, and also the craftsmanship was there because they knew nothing else at that time apart from how to make things brilliantly. One of the things that I love about traditional objects is, or, or historic objects is um, because there was no sense of fast-paced production, there is an eye for detail in these things, which I think is so much missing in a lot of what I see today. Mm. Uh, and And... Of course, in, in different times, to be able to make things with great craftsmanship and detail is was the only way of working. And now we're in a, a system where it's a disposable culture. And I, I, it breaks my heart to kind of buy something and know that it's going to get thrown away. Whereas I can pick up a, you know, I've got a glass downstairs I use every day, and it's got eighteen twenty engraved on the side of it, and it's a, got a name and. But it's just made with great care. And what I what I love about your attitude to antiques, um, I hope you don't mind me saying what your attitude is, but my understanding of your attitude is that you want them to be used and lived with and made to work for you and, you know, that we're not too precious about them. No, I mean, I, particularly in the hospitality industry, which is uh, where a lot of my work is, we would, wouldn't ever go out and buy a set of uh, original Chippendale chairs so uh, it's quite often to it quite often I will buy a reproduction set of Chippendale chairs made in the 1920s or 30s but if the client wants to would prefer them painted white or green or pink or whatever I have no qualms about doing that because it's all part of the life of a piece of furniture and we've just we've just opened a bar in the the uh home house members club where we've converted 12 uh grandfather clocks into a back bar with bottles inside cool um, great know, but grandfather clocks nobody really wants them anymore and they're beautiful pieces they're fairly cheap to buy but by repurposing them in that way everyone's going to look at them because it looks so different you know? and actually that's your second secret you repurpose found objects are in your home as well don't you yes absolutely so uh um, I'm, I'm just completing my well, repurposing parts of my home. So I've just completed converting conservatory into a large kitchen. But um, I was, I, 
but you know, money's a bit tighter at the moment, and I was wanting to do a really beautiful kitchen island, and couldn't think about. I couldn't, I couldn't commission one. It would cost too much money. And it, I don't know why. It suddenly occurred to me that people are getting rid of original full-size snooker tables that have got incredible slabs of slate on them. So yeah. I, well, I was idly looking on eBay, found a full-size snooker table at a giant country house that was getting rid of it. I bought it for £200, put it in my kitchen, cut a cooker into it, and it's you know a mahogany it's a mahogany kitchen island with a, a, a two-inch piece of, of uh, slate on top. And the joy is we found out it used to belong to Barbara Carton, and so it's got yeah. even more history to it. Quite, quite what when Barbara Carton was in her 20s, she owned this house, uh, and it's been in the house ever since. So I have all sorts of uh, romantic notions of what Barbara Carton might have got up to on the, on the snooker table <laughs> in order to create some of her stories. <laughs> it's interesting thinking about how, you know, moving – pieces on into different different rooms and the kind of the impact of that but also mm. I think it all does dovetail with the sustainability conversation I know you touched on it but mm. you know repurposing and how we shouldn't be having a disposable culture does that motivate you in your interest or it, is it is it more of a stylistic thing it's uh, that's a, a great question because I I the, the green issue of of that you know, particularly in the hospitality world it's it's a you know sorry to say it, it's a hot topic you know people are yeah. very interested in it and uh, and it's always been with me but for me the repurposing of things actually allows us to create a bit more of a story so uh it just the, the byproduct is it's also very green so yeah. so I'm, I'm very lucky in that actually the thing i love doing i'm not doing it for a trend or a fashion it's because it's absolutely where my heart is um but it's also i can't bear for anything to be thrown away and does your kind of inability to throw things away translate to a house full of clutter uh, no it's it's uh luckily i've got several giant warehouses near <laughs> which are filled with i think the last time it was counted it was twenty five thousand pieces of furniture uh, that said i um, I've always been very careful to keep my home as a separate space. Um, you know, I, when when I bring something into my home, it's because I love it and I think I'm going to keep hold of it. And it's only when a ho- uh, you know we're working on a project which I think it deserves to go to you know in a more suitable position that I'll then move it on. So it, as much as this that as much as my home looks like it's full of stock, it actually is the things that I love that I think I'm going to be living with until something crops up and okay that needs to go there and that idea of evolution links us to your third secret of time and the hood of enjoying um an interior or a home developing Mm -hmm. i think that for for me i've been in my current it's nine and a half almost ten years uh and the pictures are still i'm sat in my room now and the picture's still on the floor (laughs) (laughs) it's not it's it's not because I'm not getting around to it. It's also because sometimes I think the joy of creating an interior is getting there. It's not necessarily getting it finished. And, yeah. I, you know, the, the journey, as they always talk about, um, it's such a lovely kind of memorable part of what of, of the bigger process. So I will get around to putting up my 
paintings and pictures one day. Yeah, that's really thoughtful. Thank you so much, Russell, from filling every nook and cranny with memories and artefacts, interior design and storytelling, living in the seasons. Thank you for sharing with us how you elevate the everyday. I've really enjoyed speaking. My final guest is Vitruvius's Maria Speak. Hi, Maria. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Sarah. Please, can you open with sharing with us how you live at home, a little bit about your space, the style? We live in a sort of rooftop apartment um, that was built in the 1970s by um, Adam's father, Nicholas Hills. Um, And it's built on top of an Edwardian mansion block. So what I love is that we have this, you know, entry off the street that's very period, copper light um you know a sort of service well you know very very nicely made quite moody and mahogany and then we come out onto the roof and uh and there's this funny little 1970s sort of sliding door i mean it had been built initially very cheaply and um, um but it's what's incredible is that you come back out and there's this amazing sense of sky and light and um yeah I don't know it's so so it's slightly otherworldly and ethereal in that way but most importantly what it is for me is that it's got a little garden and and it's made me realize more and more over I mean you know we try and integrate it as much as possible within other people's homes and houses is just how and where you can get nature as close as possible to the house um, and it's sort of astonishing that we don't do more of it. Yeah. Uh, we literally have, it's, I mean, it's like a sort of, almost like a, I mean, I'm going to sort of make it not sound glamorous because it's the technical <laughs> side in a way, but it's almost like a very shallow fiberglass box that's okay. sunk, sunk into the ground. And it's probably only about 30 centimetres deep maximum. And within that, and it's probably about five metres by sort of three or four metres. And it's just this incredible playground for wild meadow. You know, I can grow a wild meadow there. There are bulbs, there's jasmine, there's all sorts. So there's, you know, there's greenery, masses and masses of greenery, but which from that also brings, you know, all the wildlife that comes with that. You know, I'm quite keen on tiny little insects and creepy crawlies and, you know, moths and bats. And actually, not that I've seen a bat in our garden particularly, but we did once have an owl. It sounds like a haven. And nature is your first secret that you've shared with us. And this idea of surrounding yourselves with, you know, obviously a garden, but also, as you say, insects, birds. This main patch um, does flow directly from what had been a kitchen space. So when the children were tiny... It was sort of their zone, you know, that was where I could put the little sand pit or the paddling pool or, you know, and where they first started playing around with seeds, etc. I, of course, during lockdown, um, think, oh, marvellous, I can redo all of that with them as they're now sort of smelly teenagers. (laughs) Somehow the excitement of growing sunflower seeds again it hasn't got quite the appeal, but it does for me. Yes. And, um, you know, and there they are. These towering structures of sunflower seeds are still there. And th- honestly, they leave them up during the winter. And, no, um, you know, all sorts of tits and whatever have come along and 
basically eaten them. I mean, it's just, it's so, so reassuring. Yeah. I mean, and how wonderful and lucky to have that so kind of connected with the interior. And back inside, you know, is, is your home designed as we would imagine a Retruvius home to be designed? Um, maybe not. I don't know how many of your listeners may or may not have been to our sort of warehouse and shop, which has a very, uh, ooh, let me say, distinct identity. It yeah. probably reflects Adam's side of things more than my side, where, you know, he likes lots of stuff and there's a kind of a different sort of age and richness and patina to it. Whereas I suppose my approach to salvaged and reclaimed materials is often very much about taking something out of its original context. And I mean, it sounds a bit wanky, I sort of apologise, but (laughs) elevating it, trying to, um, you know, putting it into a new place, which allows you to sort of step back and look at something in a different way. So for example, um, you know, we've we rescued these amazing terrazzo fluted columns that had come from a department store in Liverpool called Lewis's. And um, they are, you know, they're quite sort of massive and monumental and sort of sculptural and, but incredibly tactile mm. and yet very calm. I find them very calm. This I've got that thing of sort of more is less, if you put a whole wall of something, then that becomes your neutrality. Um, so that's what I tend to do with a lot of, you know, I, we, the team, the team here, look, you know, do that with lots of different materials, sort of definitely try to use as much of it as possible. Of course, you're always kind of slightly limited with reclaimed materials um, because you never know what well, you, you, you do know is actually what your finite source is. So, you know, you might only have... 10 square metres of a particular parquet and you've got to then think very carefully am I just going to put it back on the floor or am I going to turn it into a sort of jewel-like moment on a big pair of doors. And what would you say is the biggest challenge when you're working with reclaimed materials? Is it sort of knowing how best to use them kind of in a because I think it's so interesting what you say about you know putting them in a slightly different context to elevate them I think that's really inspiring is it what what's is there a challenge to that um well all different materials have different um challenges or or sort of fixing issues related to them um but I suppose, I think weirdly, most of the time, the biggest challenge is our own mental one, you know, whether it's our own or the builder the, or decorator, yeah. whoever you might yeah. be working with, is, is about sort of empowering them to, to understand. You sometimes can show someone an old piece of wood and depending on what type of person they are, they emotionally respond to it in different ways. Someone might say, ooh, you know, that actually just looks really dirty, you know, yeah. you know, because I, what is patina if it isn't, you know, aged in yeah. knocks and bumps, you know? And so to that person, you'd say, well, actually it's an amazing wood, whether it's teak or a maple or oak or whatever. If you don't like it like that, you could sand it back. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's a simple thing with say timber. Um, oh, I don't know with stone, um, I think sometimes it, as I say, it's about shifting where it gets put. That yeah. um, that is ideally the 
best thing. It's sometimes because it just makes you think differently about how it would get fixed. Um, yeah, your second secret is materiality or tactility, which I suppose yeah. links to what we're talking about here, because we're talking about the kind of the fact that the material itself is what's precious. What I love is when people come and actually they just immediately start touching the wall. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's a, a sense of, you know, they just go up to things and start touching it and or go round to a sort of cupboard. And, you know, there's, you know, I think it's amazing like children are so good at reminding you how you learn about materials, what's hot, what's cold, you know, the difference between... By putting it in their mouth. That's what my children do. Yes, exactly. Well, that's true. That's the one of the... We then learned about it again, kind of, you know, when Adam and I first started, literally just, you know, you start to understand materials often just by lifting them, you know, that kind of density is. And therefore that also helps inform you about how and where that where that could go but tactility I mean I feel homes are such an emotional um place in and and they cover all emotions you know I think every home would be utterly bland if it just is about calms and you know that's that's I mean that's not what we are as human beings we're you know we're very emotional creatures with highs and lows we need drama we need you know we need quiet but we you know it's the flexibility and um i don't know sort of tactile tactility to me is part of, of of your of your kind of emotional makeup as well and so do you bring in a lot of very textured surfaces to your house you know is your kitchen describe your kitchen for us i actually find it really difficult being my own client like, i'm sure yeah i love working for other people that it's I don't know completely if it's like being an actor, but being able to try and step into someone else's shoes and, you know, imagine life through them, you know, how they make a cup of tea, that, you know, are they slipper people or are they, are they, you know, it's all of those things, you know, where, what, so for me, I found when we redid this wonderful rooftop, which by the way, as I said, had been built in the 1970s. So it was Baltic and had no insulation <laughs> and it seemed so hypocritical. So we just thought, my God, we've got to pump it full of insulation and, yeah. um, you know, just bring it up to standard. And, um, and then in the process, it made me think, okay, well, what, what have I loved or enjoyed exploring on other people's projects as well. The kitchen itself, going back to your original point, is it's um, it's actually all made from our reclaimed um, Iroco and um, you know the desktops and yeah. laboratory from universities wherever Adams managed to get them from. And of course, that's obviously a very finite material. And you know how many more schools and universities are going to be stripped out? Who knows? But um, I then profiled them so that the whole of the kitchen um takes on this rather organic form so you actually can't see any you don't know what's a door or a drawer or so it's just a very sort of sculptural lovely yeah quite fun although some people come and they go and thinking like oh maria where is the food (laughs) (laughs) which i know other people sort of hate but actually they're so lovely and warm to touch that um the kitchen splashback is made from old, um, you know, on uh, doors when you're going in and out of big institutional buildings, you will have like a brass push plate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. And at the bottom will be a brass kick plate. Anyway, we had, we salvaged a large quantity of those. And, 
you know, I like a little twinkle every now and then. Um, and what's great is that is the splashback. That's a sort of big sort of splashback behind. Brilliant. What mm. I realised in doing your own house is, and, and just seeing it with clients and just understanding the nature of why things go in and out of fashion and why more things aren't salvaged or aren't able to be salvaged is actually comes down very often to how they are in, installed in the first place, how they're glued or screwed or whatever. Of course, so yeah. Flashback is a perfect example of they're literally just screwed. So when I'm bored senseless of a brass splashback, I literally, all I have to do is get the screwdriver out and take them all off. They won't be damaged. Yeah. And, and you've got another whole opportunity to play and put something else. And I think that as for us as designers, we need to be re-empowering people. You know, what's been so brilliant about COVID and lockdown is how, you know, the sort of the so many people are DIYing again, you know, I don't yeah. know. I was brought up in the 70s, so, you know, everyone, that's all everyone did at the weekends, DIY or go to the pub. But um, um, I think the DIY thing is sort of fabulous, which because it reminds you how you need to factor in change. You know, we as we're creative beings and we need change, or at least I do. Um, there's a small percentage of people who don't like change. But um, so, yes, yeah, so I like screws things that are screwed in place or if you're using timber always screw it and then put a little plug because then it's easy for other people in the future to work out how to take it off rather than using a crowbar yeah that's so i mean that's just so interesting and something that i have to admit i've never considered can you remember the first space that had an impact on you well i mean i think everyone you always remember your childhood home yeah and, you know, I can regularly re-walk around it. I mean, and I regularly do. Um, um, and I suppose not that architecturally or spatially, I mean, it was a tiny little cottage um, in Woodstock. And um, and I don't know, I like, you know, I, as I say, I can walk through it and I remember all the materials because when you're little, you experience them as well through your knees. Yes. <laughs> as well as through your hands and eyes or whatever. So, um, yeah, sort of panel doors, how the light came in, where pictures were. And I remember my parents converting the sort of attic space and really, you know, beautifully opening up the old timber beams and um, and just sort of, I think I sort of slightly fell in love with the smell of plasterboard and paint and wood. And I think, I, I, I think that the sort of transformative um, nature of, of that, I, I think, sort of sowed the seeds. Now, your third secret is connected um, and making visual links. Tell us what you mean by that. Oh, I suppose that um, when we first moved into this um, uh, crazy apartment that sort of did initially look like a sort of 70s porn pad. Um, <laughs> it, it was more, honestly, it was totally marvellous. Yeah, it had such a sort of strong identity. But what it also had was, you know, it is 100%, was 100% open plan. Mm. And that is amazing in lots of ways, but also disastrous in others um, in terms of, you know, everyone... Well, A, I think it's quite important. Everyone, every 
home, I think, needs at least one door that you can occasionally slam in a room. <laughs> I agree. And this had none. It was only sliding doors. So that was one thing. Um, and also, um, I think, you you know, you do need to sort of start eking out moments of privacy and helping to divide spaces. And, and I think the very fact now that we're all working from home much more. That's what I was about to say, I yeah. think it's become even more important, um, this broken plan. Um, yeah. But the acoustics, so yes, exactly. So it's how you deal with the acoustics, but at the same time, feel connected to everybody and know where everyone is. So I am incredibly keen on internal windows um, and sliding doors, stroke sliding walls. So you don't necessarily know that something's a door. It just looks like it's a, a wall. It might have a painting on it or it might have a little. So where my boys playroom, I mean, they're, you know, they're teenagers now. I shouldn't really call it a playroom, but, you know, their zone. I have a sliding door with a tiny little sort of almost 20 centimetres by 20 centimetre little copper light popped in it. I just wanted to be able to check in as of what's going on, but I didn't necessarily need to make my presence over, you know, they're not sort of overly aware of it. But I think that sense of interconnectedness, the sort of playfulness of life as well. So the the reason for the copper lights was in a way to try and... um, have a sense of connectedness to this Edwardian building, but in a very, but in a very contemporary way. So um, sometimes we use copper light doors. Um, Adam salvaged a number from, I think it was from the Ned, um, and okay. and they we've actually put them on their side, so they're not how you proportionally would have normally seen them, and. That's been quite fun. But in the, in at home, you know, we've got a little sliding window. I think probably visiting, um, you know, that marvellous Villanecchi in um, Milan. Everyone's yeah. been Salone or whatever. You know, we all take various bits of inspiration from it. Anyway, I've got this little glass sliding door between the study and the sitting room. And there was a whole idea when the children were younger that it was like, oh, that's great. That's where you can kind of sort of serve your popcorn from when you were all going to have a sort of Friday night. Well, I've got thousands of favourite objects, but um, the favourite room, what's interesting is, which I probably didn't explain properly, this Edwardian building with this 70s connection actually reconnects into the old Edwardian dormer spaces, which are these tiny little, they're like the little tent-like structures that you get on the outside of the buildings, the little pointed. Um, and they are all tiny rooms. Anyway, they're, we call them cabins. And they're, they're absolutely tiny. And my 15-year-old is now, you know, his, I mean, it's a bit like a dog kennel, but um, they are the most fabulous places to sleep in because they're tiny and contained really cozy and you're not distracted by anything else particularly when you're in them and so I think the idea of the actual sleeping quarters almost being defined a bit more like that literally these sort of dreamlike pods that you go into for a fabulous night's sleep thereby really freeing up the floor plan to be mm-hmm. as flexible as those who are moving into it you know whether it's someone with a young family or 
um, you know, or a single person or an aged couple, you know, and, and reflecting on your passions. That's so insightful and feels like kind of a fresh way of looking at things, which is really exciting. I mean, you've taken us from your wild garden. We've talked about the importance of tactility, your childhood home, the cozy cabins. You've painted such a wonderful picture for me. So thank you. And plenty of food for thought for how we may all enhance our own homes. So I've really enjoyed speaking. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's inspiring episode of The Well-Crafted Life, a future homes production from Homes and Gardens and Martin Moore. I'm Sarah Spiteri, and my editor is Matt Gibbs. We hope you'll listen in again next week. Mm-hmm.